Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's 2020, and Suzuki hasn't taken home a MotoGP championship in two decades. The season has been a tough one, shortened by the COVID-19 pandemic, and with the increased pressure of it being the company's 100th anniversary. But 23-year-old Mallorcan rider John Mira is hungry. The last time Suzuki brought home a championship, courtesy of the legendary Kenny Roberts, Mira was still in diapers. Now, Mira has set his sights on bringing in the win. Not just for the riders' championship, but for the team as well. After 14 races, the young rider delivers for his team. Mira himself later said, World champion? It's really hard to find the words at the moment. To be the person who brings Suzuki another crown after 20 years is an unbelievable feeling. A true honor. After his win, many believed that Mira was going to lead Suzuki into a new era of racing glory. But 2021 didn't go according to plan. And neither did 2022. In fact, despite Suzuki signing a new contract with MotoGP to participate in the series until 2026, the world was shocked to learn that the company that pretty much launched the golden era of superbikes would again be pulling out of MotoGP. Today on Pass Gas, how did Suzuki switch from building looms to crafting some of the best motorcycles on the planet? Why did they pull their cars from the US market? And are they getting out of racing for good? We're going to find out. This is Past Gas on what the hell was happening with Suzuki. Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars. It's not about ports. For the next season of High Low, we're building looms. <laughs> <laughs> a cheap loom is not a great loom. Let me tell you that. <laughs> You want a good quality loom? I like how 
all these companies started off doing something really random. Totally like mm-hmm. on, yeah. Like Peugeot made pepper grinders. Yeah. Bicycles. I have a Peugeot pepper grinder. Me too. It's great. It's great. Yeah, Nintendo started with like playing cards mm-hmm. back in the day. Uh, Mazda started with Merkins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wigs for your penis. <laughs> yeah, that's in, that's a incredible piece of trivia right there. <laughs> uh, hello, welcome to Pass Gas. My name is Nolan Sykes. Very nasally, I guess today. Um, I'm joined by my co-hosts, as always. We got James Pumphrey. Give me back my son <laughs> and Joe Weber. Slurp and gurp. <laughs> Guys, what's your impression of Suzuki? They make great violins. Do they? That's Yamaha. Oh, yeah. Duh. <laughs> the Yamaha. No, isn't there the Suzuki right-hand method is a violin technique, <laughs> I think. I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Uh, I could be completely wrong. I have wrong. no idea. I'll take your word for it. That sounds really cool. The Suzuki right-hand method. Nice. I remember they used to, like, when they sold Suzukis here in the U.S., like, I remember seeing, like, color advertisements in the newspaper where it's like, you could get a Suzuki Swift. There's like some Suzuki SUVs that look pretty cool. I remember liking I, I, this very nostalgic feeling I have for this company, you know, and it's kind of, I don't know if it's sad necessarily, but it's, I don't know, there's like a warm feeling for me. Wow. Yeah. With Suzuki. They have a great logo. It's maybe one of the better of the automotive logos logo. for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. really cool. Um, also, it's just fun to say, Suzuki. <laughs> the Suzuki method is an internationally known music curriculum and teaching philosophy teaching philosophy yeah what kind of philosophy it's a way of learning a way a philosophy of teaching it's a way of learning to play an instrument by just listening to music and playing along to it oh so just playing by ear sure yeah if you want to like trivialize it (laughs) okay (laughs) i don't know suzuki samurai is another one Mm -hmm. i love those things yeah so fun off-road hayabusa's yeah Coolest motorcycle possible. Always ridden by big guys. Yeah. <laughs> big boys on the Big old boys. Yeah. <laughs> I realized that I, we got a little pit bike for a video, and I realized that I look like a big fatty on any <laughs> motorcycle. Like, my legs go wide. You and, and I could be, like, those big twins. Yes. <laughs> I always reference the, the world's fattest twins. that are, They have the record for... <laughs> the fattest twins that ride motorcycles. <laughs> a hotly contested uh, category. I think we could beat it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you look in record books. Give me six like, he was the fattest man on earth. <laughs> a whopping 186 pounds. And you're like, oh, okay. It's a shame he didn't have a twin. <laughs> yeah. I think we could beat them. <laughs> it's a shame he didn't have a twin. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Well. What are some other records we could beat on motorcycles? <laughs> on motorcycles? having a great deal of skill. Largest bird eaten on a motorcycle. <laughs> 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 yeah, we could definitely, on the back of the fattest challenges, we could definitely beat some eating challenges on motorcycles. Mm-hmm. Something I really want to do is like, like there's a genre of video of like doing something really gnarly, mm-hmm. you know? And I want to do something gnarly on one of these mini bikes. I'm just not sure what it is yet. Maybe take one of them up the Rubicon Trail. Yeah. Basically make myself uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. you know? I'm trying to get away from that kind of content. Yeah. 
I'd like to. Well, like, you have a family now. <laughs> <laughs> I love saying. <laughs> I'd love to figure out how to like make car content in like the French Riviera. Uh huh. You know, yeah. or like Mykonos. Yeah, Lake Como. Yeah, like yeah. I'd love to like make some car content in Lake Como. Yeah. You and Paul Hollywood take a vintage <laughs> Fiat. Yeah, down that's the, the kind of shit. That's kind you of don't stuff even I drive mean. the car. You just sit at a little table eating like a beautiful yeah. meal mm-hmm. while you're just like, just look at it. Look at it. It's beautiful. Yeah. And he's like, but you instantly hate him. <laughs> <laughs> he's beautiful, but goddamn, he's annoying. <laughs> I don't know. I think Paul Hollywood would be okay. I think I would hang out with Paul Hollywood. You got to remember, he's an entertainer, so he plays. Uh, you don't see what he's like in real life. Right, yeah. and we both have like the same like sex daddy vibe. That's a, that was my next point. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. I'm, yeah. God damn it! What? Very divisive when both of us lick our lips. <laughs> <laughs> What's your version of the handshake that he does? Oh. Um, I'll write someone a check for $10. <laughs> I should be paying you for this stodgy yeah, so cornbread muffin. Out, yeah, I'll pull out my checkbook and write a check for $10. <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say, don't cash that for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I like date it for two weeks <laughs> so they can't cash it. It's a great story. Um, okay, yeah. So let's let's talk about Suzuki. Let's get into it. Here on Past Gas, we usually start from the very, very beginning, like when we talked about <laughs> bicycles <laughs> and geology. When we talked about Bonneville, that was that was fun. yeah. In Bonneville, we talked about yeah. Like, <laughs> I like that rocks. One. Yeah, that was fun. But Suzuki's <laughs> MotoGP announcement has us feeling like we've got to talk about the present day just a little bit first. To those in our audience that watch MotoGP, it might not be that surprising that Suzuki has decided to bail on MotoGP after the last two years. The team didn't see a single win in 2021, and they're on track for the same sad statistic this year. When even KTM and Aprilia, two notoriously mediocre teams, have managed a first-place finish. Nobody likes being a perpetual loser, and there's no shame in pulling back and refocusing. But Suzuki is also pulling out of the Endurance World Championships, a series in which they're the current world champions. Suzuki also just signed a contract at the start of the season with MotoGP owner Dorna Sports to participate in the series until 2026, meaning there are likely some stiff penalties coming their way. Carlo Pernat, Aprilia Racing Team's former chief and current manager of Ducati MotoGP rider Ania Bastianini, that's a sick name. Yeah, Bastianini. Bastianini. Yeah. Told, Bastianini. <laughs> told Cycle World that Suzuki could incur as much as 10 million euro in penalties for its breach of contract. Not to mention that they now have to face a small army of pissed off riders, managers, engineers, and fans. It's got us thinking, what is going on at Suzuki? To pull out of racing is an especially perplexing choice when you know the history of the company. Because when Suzuki initially got into the motorized vehicle business, they made racing a foundational element of their business model. Like most auto companies, Suzuki's history goes back even further than cars and motorcycles. As we mentioned in the opening, the company celebrated its 100th anniversary in 2020. Even though the company was actually founded by Michio Suzuki in Hamamatsu, Japan back in 1909. 
Back then, Suzuki was called the Suzuki Loom Works. And if you think that sounds like a boring beginning, A, Toyota also started as a loom manufacturer. Oh, Okay. And B, you don't know how big textiles were back then. Oh. In fact, Michio had started out as a carpenter's apprentice, but he could see that the real money was going to be in looms. <laughs> I'm telling you, dude, the money's in the looms. Yeah. yeah, dude, you ever heard of this thing called fabric? <laughs> More than that, he <laughs> saw an coin, dude. You yeah, gotta invest dude. in loom coin. More than that, he saw an opportunity to make a name for himself. Michio's region in Japan was known for striped and checkered patterns in their textiles, which were patterns that are particularly complex for traditional looms to create. Any loom head will know that. Yeah. <laughs> to solve this issue, Michio designed a new kind of loom that easily allowed for a mechanized switching to create those patterns. It sounds simple to us now, but yep. it was pretty ingenious back then. Sounds so simple. Yeah, no way, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Machia was so successful that 11 years later, in 1920, Suzuki Loom Works was reorganized and incorporated as the Suzuki Loom Manufacturing Company with Michio as president. Suzuki's success seemed unstoppable, and in 1929, the company even developed a weaving machine that was exported to the rest of the world. But Michio wasn't satisfied. Ever the forward thinker, yes, getting into looms in 1909 was considered forward thinking. Michio looked toward diversification of his company and settled on small cars. Research on the project began in late 1936, starting with dismantling an Austin 7. By 1937, Suzuki's engineers had already developed an engine, liquid-cooled, and with an aluminum crankcase and gearbox. Well, that seems hmm. pretty progressive for yeah. the time. Aluminum. The four-stroke, four-cylinder engine was able to coax 13 horsepower from less than 800 cc's, which was actually very impressive for the time, especially when you consider that the Austin 7 they dismantled as part of the research process originally only made 7 horsepower from a 700 cc engine. What? Double the horsepower. So low. When they later bumped capacity to 750 cc's, they were still only delivering uh, just over 10 horsepower. So 13 is pretty good. By 1939, Suzuki had developed several prototypes of their new car and were set to take on the auto industry. Unfortunately, Michio's string of successes was about to come to a halt. By the late 30s, the outbreak of World War II, the Japanese government declared civilian passenger cars a non-essential commodity. Because of this, Suzuki spent the remainder of the war producing war materials in addition to their looms. By the end of the war, Suzuki as a company had made it through and were ready to get back to full-time loom and weaving machine production, but there were still obstacles in place. After the war, the U.S. had sanctions and regulations placed on all industries in Japan. But capitalism quickly prevailed, and it wasn't too long before the U.S. government approved the shipping of cotton into Japan, and business started roaring again. With the resumption of domestic textile manufacturing, Suzuki was in the perfect position for a post-war recovery. And then, thanks to a worldwide recession, the bottom fell out of the cotton market in 1951. Mm, like my ass through some cotton pajamas <laughs> <laughs> too caked up joe <laughs> <laughs> so now it's 1952 
Michio is 64 years old, and he again decides to shift gears, pun intended, just like when he had the vision to switch careers from carpentry to loom making. The result was the power-free motorized bicycle. The power-free was the world's first true moped. And just like Suzuki's looms, all parts were manufactured in-house by Suzuki. The moped offered a 36cc two-stroke engine delivering one horsepower, <laughs> and it gave the driver the option of three drive configurations. One, you could pedal like a normal bicycle, or have the engine provide some extra oomph while pedaling, or the engine could take over completely, just like electric bicycles today, except with the power-free, pedaling didn't refuel the bike. 36cc is tiny. We're um, trying to order this, the world's smallest production V8. Yeah. For a video, and it's 28 cc's, <laughs> and it it's just a little tiny, like, I don't know, shoebox style size thing. Uh, this one was probably a single cylinder, though. Mm -hmm. Imagine a little cup. Yeah, imagine uh, 33 cubic centimeters of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> That's something. <laughs> Put it into uh, <laughs> into perspective for you. Imagine thirty three cubic centimeters. Yeah, like when you're at the the breakfast diner uh -huh. and the server's like, "Do you want me to fill you up?" And you're like, "I just want like thirty six cc." Yeah, give me like thirty six cc's. The power free was such a huge success that the Japanese government gave Michio a patent to further research motorcycle tech. The Suzuki Motor Corp was born and officially launched the company headfirst. In a motorized vehicle. There we go. I feel like uh, every town has a weird guy on a moped. What? <laughs> <laughs> I was in Portland, and <laughs> it honestly is like a Portlandia sketch everywhere you drive around. There's a dude that I was just walking down the street, and I didn't hear him coming because it was a completely silent vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, like, two big front wheels and, like, a small one small back wheel. Huh. And he was, like, <laughs> powering it by shifting side to side. And, I like, uh, he almost ran into me, uh -huh. and I was like, oh, my He's God. He's like, watch where you're going, dude. Yeah. I'm fucking <laughs> shuffling side to side yeah. over here. But everything's weird there. <laughs> well, they say keep it weird. Yeah, they keep, hate that. Keep Portland weird. I kept bringing that up with... <laughs> with Emily's friends and they were like cringing because that's like they hate that they're like thanks for the cop keep it weird dude yeah keep it weird. <laughs> Portland just got a little bit weirder <laughs> <laughs> you're wearing like a hat with ears on it or something <laughs> we'll get back to more past gas but right now a word from our sponsors Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly 
which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Meanwhile, at Suzuki, uh, just one year later in 1953, the new Power Free came out. This bike was named the Diamond Free and came with a 58cc engine and two horsepower. That's right, guys. It was double the size and double the power. Thanks to its double sprocket wheel mechanism crafted to avoid power loss, the Diamond Free won the prestigious Mount Fuji Hill Climb that year and kicked off the company's focus on racing that would last until, well, earlier this year. But in 1954, Suzuki launched the Kaleida, their first true motorcycle, powered by a four-stroke, single-cylinder, 90cc engine that churned out a blistering four horsepower. This thing looks awesome. It looks like a little cafe racer. Now, these sound like tiny engines, and they were, but that was a calculated decision. At the time, Japan had decided that any two-stroke up to 60 cc's or four-stroke up to 90 cc's wouldn't need a license to operate. Kind of like how scooters are today. If they're under, now you still need a scooter. You need a license in California, but like typically, it's like if it's under 100, under, yeah, yeah, 100 under 150 cc, you don't need a license or a motorcycle license. This meant that Suzuki could reach as many people as possible, and it also didn't hurt that the Kaleida came with features like a telescopic front fork rear shock absorbers, a sprung seat, and front and rear lights. Pretty luxurious. It was also the first Japanese motorcycle with a speedometer, so the driver could tell when they hit the top speed of around 45 miles per hour. It's not bad. Probably pretty scary on this little bike. Yeah, uh, Jerry bought that Yamaha R3, mm-hmm. and I yeah. rode it around. And, like, I, you know, I'm not, like, used to riding motorcycles, even though I can do it, but, like, I, you know... Gunned it. I was. I thought I was flying, like just yeah. down La Brea, and I looked down the speedo. It's like forty-five, and I was <laughs> like, oh, oh, "Okay." <laughs> so yeah, to have that on something with like bicycle tires is uh, pretty gnarly. Yeah, I used to have a puke moped. With puke. Like, yeah. Oh, P-U-C-H. Uh-huh. With a sixty-five cc like stroker kit. Uh huh. <laughs> and it went like fifty. Oh God. And, but it's like solid rear end, uh, and it was terrifying. Yeah, but I bet you looked pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but in 1955, the rules that allowed the Kaleida to sneak by without the need for a license were changed. So naturally, no longer restricted on engine capacity, Suzuki bumped it up. The 90cc was dropped for a 125 cubic centimeter version. Suzuki wasn't pleased with the reliability of the four-stroke engines, so the company began to concentrate on two-strokes instead. It would be another 20 years before Suzuki returned to the four-stroke with the GT750 Water Buffalo. Fuck yes. But that's another story. I feel like Water Buffalo and Bison are like two names that haven't really been used a lot yes. in the automotive canon, and they really should be. Oh, mm-hmm. for sure. Strong Bison. animals. Or uh, Wildebeest, dude. Wildebeest would be a sick moped. Yeah. <laughs> they killed Simba's dad, so. So. that was They were just scared, though. That's right. It wasn't their them. fault. They were running from a rock slide, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
For now, the Kaleida was joined by various two-stroke single-cylinder engines, but it was in 1956 with a 250cc two-stroke twin version that it really came into its own. This thing sounds sick. With that engine, you got 16 horsepower and an 80 mile per hour top speed. That's this beast. that is that that's wildebeest. <laughs> this is the granddaddy of all Suzuki two-stroke twins. We should bring back beast mode. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right, dude. This this little scooter. It's beast, beast mode. mode. I'm about to go beast mode on this chicken wrap, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Since the bike was styled after American motorcycles of the time, it got some upgrades, like a floating swing arm rear suspension. That's sick, instead of like the uh, two-shock deal. The new Kaleida was a hit, but it hadn't even begun to impress. In In 1959, Suzuki made two important decisions with the Kaleida. First, they slapped the Suzuki S on the bike for the first time. Hell yeah. Love the Suzuki S. Previously, it had been badged as just a Kaleida. Second, they decided they would take it racing. Suzuki sent four riders and 11 mechanics to spend three months living in a wooden shack on the volcanic Mount Asana, testing the bike for the inaugural Asama Highland Race, an event now known as the All Japan Motorcycle Endurance Road Race. When you go racing in a higher elevation, like what, what do you have to do to... At that time... Uh, because fuel injection wasn't a thing, they probably had to rejet the carburetors uh, to account for less oxygen up there. Uh, so, so it'd be running be like it more rich or less. Yeah, probably air's thinner. The air's thinner, so you need more so, air. Yeah, so it's running lean. Lean, I think. Mm-hmm. So if you were to take that same bike down, down, it'd be running really lean. Yeah, and probably burn like the cylinder. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then dude, 19- you just went beast mode on that. <laughs> on that freaking calculation, <laughs> dude. In the 1950s in Japan, there were over 200 companies building motorcycles, so competition was fierce, and winning was important. Dude, today there's not, like, like, I can't think of any industry where there's 200 companies making something. Everything is, like, consolidated, and they all own each other. Yeah. YouTube. I think that's all. Skateboarding, kind of, there's a lot of indie, indie companies. But they all kind of, like, do they make their own decks or do they buy blanks no. and put their own They stuff? buy blanks, they, yeah. they screen print them. Yeah. <sighs> in Suzuki's <laughs> first foray, sorry. In Suzuki's first foray, three out of the five bikes broke down and only one of the bikes actually crossed the finish line. However, on one lap, Suzuki set the record with a five minute 50 time, which announced their presence with authority. They'd proven their motorcycles were fast, but Michio knew that wasn't enough. Now, he needed to prove they were reliable. Thankfully, help was on the way, sneaking out of East Berlin in the trunk of a car. And that help was named Ernst Degner. We, we, uh, why, was he, why was he sneaking out of Berlin? <laughs> I don't know. I can't think of any circumstances why you want to sneak out yeah, of Berlin. Really nothing comes to mind. Hmm. Let's move on. <laughs> We've talked about this guy. Yeah. yeah. If you want to hear more about uh, Ernst Degner, we did an entire uh, episode of the show about him. Motorcycle Spy. Episode 141. Ernst Degner. That's the about as close as you can get to not having any vowels in your name. <laughs> Ernst. <laughs> what do you want to name him? Ernst. 
was an engineer and Grand Prix road racer from Germany who began his motorcycle journey in 1950, winning races on smaller two-stroke bikes and making a name for himself throughout his home country. His performances attracted the attention of German manufacturer MZ, a company that's still making bikes today, and MZ's team manager, Walter Caden. That's right. I remember him. Yeah, I remember these names. There's a whole episode on Ernst. Caden had managed to advance two-stroke tuning by taking advantage of expansion chambers and sound waves to optimize loop scavenging, what an extremely heck? important principle with two-stroke engines. And also making sick beats. Yeah, it sounds like uh, he this guy hangs out with Dead Mouse and Zed. Yeah, loop scavenging. We should probably hit up the alchemists. <laughs> that was just the sort of thing to attract Degner's attention. And in 1956, he started working with MZ, a relationship that led to several national and world championship victories in the 125cc class throughout the rest of the 1950s. But this was post-war Europe, all right? And East Germany was under increasingly oppressive Soviet control, with tensions between East and West Germany growing. However, Degner's racing allowed him contact with people from Western countries as he connected with racers from all over the world. Sorry, wouldn't they, they would like let him go? Race. Like, yeah, race to like prove that their technology Dominant, was good. Yeah. And then they like had, he had to come back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like uh, Ivan Drago. Yeah. Yeah. All right, come back now. <laughs> yeah. Degner saw how their standards of living surpassed what he was experiencing in East Germany and started forming a plan to defect. At the time, people were allowed to travel freely from East Berlin to West Berlin, as it was common for folks to live on one side and work on the other. However, increasing defections from East to West led to the building of the Berlin Wall in 1961, and Degner's plans were ruined. Can you imagine just like being like, y'all keep leaving? Mm -hmm. oh, we're going to build a wall. <laughs> insane. My dad had a piece of the Berlin Wall on his desk. What? Mm-hmm. Whoa. So a new plan was formed. While Degner, I think my dad really liked Ronald Reagan. Hmm. Where's that piece now, do you know? Nothing from my childhood exists anymore. Huh. So a new plan was formed. While Degner was trying to clinch the 125cc world championship for MZ in the 1961 Swedish Grand Prix, his family crammed themselves into the trunk of a car and were smuggled across the border. Degner met up with them after the race where they were finally free. Understandably, MZ was not happy about this, especially considering that Degner's engine had failed early on in the race. The East German state officially accused him of sabotage and had his East German racing license revoked. He was like, whatever. Because <laughs> <laughs> he'd already obtained a West German racing license to race with EMC, but his troubles with MZ were not over. The complaints filed with the International Motorcycling Federation caused a delay in his bike getting shipped to the Argentinian Grand Prix, which meant he couldn't race. Had he won, he still could have secured the world championship. And despite an IMF court clearing him of any wrongdoing later that year, the damage was already done. Degner's German racing career had come to an end. But luckily, his Japanese racing career was about to begin. <laughs> That's a glow up. That's a glow <laughs> up, dude. Just like jump from axis to axis. <laughs> <laughs> 
The same month that Degner was cleared by the IMF court, he was hired by Suzuki. He and his family immediately moved to Hamamatsu, Japan, so Degner could spend the winter applying the knowledge he'd gained while at MZ to redesign Suzuki's bikes. Michio had set his sights on the motorcycle race, the Isle of Man, and Degner was going to help him win it. Hell yeah. It's so crazy hearing these stories from like 70 years ago of people just bopping around the world. Mm -hmm. Because it would take so long. (laughs) Yeah. You got to race in Argentina. You have to spend two weeks traveling there. There's no race like the Isle of Man. We did a two-parter on it, but we're going to give you a little context anyway. The Isle of Man is called the most dangerous sporting event in the world or the world's last great sporting event. It's a week-long time trial event run on closed public roads that have resulted in hundreds of deaths in its century-long history. Held on a small island situated in the middle of the Irish Sea, the Isle of Man offers racers everything from hill climbs to long straights to dense forest sections that present a challenge that can't be matched in other circuits. It's crazy to see footage of modern superbikes do this because they're just like 180, like catching air through like tiny city streets. It's unreal, man. Michio Suzuki wanted to win the Isle of Man. Degner spent all winter of 1961 and 62 developing new 50 and 125cc racers. And when the 1962 Isle of Man came around, it was Degner who crossed the finish line first in the ultralight 50cc class on a Suzuki. I wonder how fast they went. Can't be that fast. No. I mean, by today's standards. 60 maybe? In the 50 cc? Maybe. Maybe. A little over a decade earlier, Suzuki had been a loom company, and now they'd won one of the most prestigious motor events in the world. And the wins didn't stop there. A few years later, Suzuki dropped the T20, known as the Super 6 in the UK, and the X6 Hustler here in the US. Nice. That's, That's another little cafe racer looking thing. But no matter what it was called, it was the fastest 250cc motorcycle in the world. When the legendary BSA was offering a 250cc single that could barely muster 15 horsepower and would struggle to get past 70 miles per hour, the T20 had double the pistons, nearly double the horsepower, and could push past 90. And in 1968, they doubled the capacity to 500cc, making it the biggest two-stroke in the world. More than that, the T500 could go over 100 miles an hour. And even better, it could do it reliably. In less than 20 years, Suzuki had proven that they could not only shift gears into producing motorcycles, they could produce some of the best bikes in the world. And now, it was time to do the same thing. But with cars? (laughs) (laughs) It's like two motorcycles with a house in the middle. Oh, yeah. They got motorcycles. (laughs) Even though Suzuki's automotive journey really kicked off in 1968, they had already dipped their toes into cars back in 1937 before the war brought an end to that experiment. After the war, Suzuki refocused their attentions, and in 1955, they basically created the K-Car category with the Suzulite, which sounds like a joke instrument. I mean, (laughs) it looks ridiculous. (laughs) Um, it looks like a, like a, a Nash Metropolitan kind of. Mm-hmm. It looks but like a car that Mickey Mouse drives. Mixed with a Mini Cooper kind of. It's also it's raised car. like a foot. Yeah, it's got It's some, like a gasser. Yeah. <laughs> pretty interesting. It's a front wheel drive car with a transversely mounted engine, a layout that many passenger cars still use today. But in 1968, something special happened. Hope 
came to Suzuki. The Hope Motor Company <laughs> had been making three-wheel <laughs> motorcycles and tuk-tuks in Japan to little success. Their last attempt to stay viable had come in the form of a small 4x4 truck named the Hope Star ON360, mostly constructed of Mitsubishi parts and engines. It was about as basic as a four-wheel drive vehicle can get, with the exception of a pretty robust four-wheel drive system. It was the world's first 4x4 K-car. I have a feeling I know where this is going. It's estimated that only <laughs> 15 were completed before the company folded, and despite the partnership they'd had up until that point, Mitsubishi decided not to continue production. So Hope turned to Suzuki, who was waiting in the wings with open arms. Suzuki purchased the designs for the Hope Star ON360, and since they were essentially hand-built and utilized Mitsubishi parts and engines, they had to reconfigure nearly everything. But the result was Suzuki's first global hit, the Jimny. Ooh. Or as we know it in the United States, the Samurai. Ooh. Dude, I remember in 2003, I loved going on HopeStarRunner.com. Yeah, what's a strong bad? Strong sad on Hope Star <laughs> The Samurai offered capabilities and the Samurai offered capabilities that equaled and even beat competitors like Jeep, but at a fraction of the cost. With a catchy marketing campaign, the Samurai was a hit, propelling Suzuki to new heights both financially and literally. In fact <laughs> and figuratively. <laughs> And altitudinal laundry. <laughs> In fact, the Samurai held a world record for 12 years for highest altitude reached by a Ooh. 4x4, beating out a Wrangler to do it. Unfortunately, another hit was headed for the Samurai. This is like a, a thing they do in, what, Argentina or something, mm -hmm. where they keep climbing this mountain higher and higher, and there's, like, Jeep people put, like, Jeeps only. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, Mercedes did it with a Unimog mm -hmm. and put another snarky sign up there. Mm -hmm. It's a fun little competition. In 1987, Suzuki sold two Samurais for every Wrangler. Whoa. But then, in 1988, Consumer Reports came out with a report for consumers <laughs> that stated the Samurai easily rolls over in turns. Oh. Sales immediately plummeted, dropping to around 2,000 the year after the report was released. Suzuki was forced to pull the Samurai from U.S. shores in 1995. We made a video about this. Yes, we did. On yeah. our YouTube channel. You can it's a, a hit job. It's by a hit job American, by Consumer Reports. Because yeah. American uh, car companies don't like competition. The next year, Suzuki filed a lawsuit against Consumer Reports, a lawsuit that was finally settled in 2007. Whoa. Consumer Reports admitted that they'd used the word easily a bit too easily. <laughs> but the real story is even worse than that. Video has been released of the company altering their tests in order to make the samurai fail. Yeah, and there's you can hear a guy in the background go, like, drive it harder until it flips. Mm -hmm. um, and even though uh, the lawsuit was settled in favor of Suzuki, it was too late. Suzuki's reputation had been tarnished and U.S. buyers just didn't trust them anymore. This provided an opportunity for competitors like Toyota and Honda. Honda. <laughs> this provided an opportunity for competitors like Toyota and Honda to offer their own small SUVs, projects they'd had in development for years. 
The samurai had been capable, but the CRVs and RAV4s were comfortable. And given the small percentage of SUV owners who actually take their vehicles off-road, the writing was on the wall. When it came to small SUVs, Suzuki just couldn't keep up. Not in the U.S., at least. Here, all they had left to offer Americans were cheap, small cars, but Kias and Hyundais, with 10-year warranties, eventually killed that market for them, too. That was, like, wild when it first came out, to have a 10-year warranty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They should have a 30-year warranty. Yeah. Yeah. But it costs $400,000. <laughs> with another one-two punch of increased EPA stringency and an abysmal dealer network, Suzuki was in a familiar death spiral. They had no presence in the market. They had low sales, no money for new dealerships. The company was doomed. Suzuki hung on for longer than many thought they would and even had their best sales year in 2007 in the U.S. With over 100,000 cars sold. But a few years later, sales had dropped again to less than a quarter of that. By 2012, Americans couldn't buy a four-wheeled Suzuki in their home country. As far as Americans were concerned, Suzuki now meant motorcycles. Thanks, Obama. Yeah, thanks a lot, Obama. Their Grand Vitara is like... A pretty capable offer. I remember that. Yeah, and then there's the uh, X7 or something like that was yeah. one of them. My buddy uh, Christian, his little brother, had a, a a lifted Suzuki Samurai that we would take down in the creek. Oh, and, nice. uh Dude, that thing, it was so fun to, like, off-road that thing. It was so yeah. capable. And it's just so tall and short. And yeah, <laughs> like it's great. Light. Yeah, it was awesome. It had a manual transmission. It was really fun. That's some of the most fun I've had. Off-road. Do you still uh, keep in contact with Christian? I uh, I went to his house last year. Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, and he builds like rock crawlers. Is like his side thing. Oh, he cool. Does. So he kept his hobby up. Oh yeah, and he he's working on a uh, his current project right now is a cab. Fr- it's a tube chassis car, but with a cab from a Dodge Ram, so he can keep the VIN and everything, keep it street legal, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, running with a Mercedes uh, four-cylinder diesel. Whoa. Yeah. Christian's super talented. I, I, I want to, like, have him in or, like, do something with us off-roading-wise eventually. I think that'd be sweet. Christian Bennett, what's up, man? What's up? I'm going to go out on a limb here and be like, <laughs> and say, Creeks are sick. Creeks are sick. Yeah. I love creeks. So. No one will ever, you'll never hear anyone say that. Yeah. Yeah. But everyone's thinking it. His wife, Carolyn, is really cool too. Oh, shouts to Christian and Carolyn. Yeah. We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Times were tough for Suzuki cars, but at the same time, Suzuki had been dominating in the motorcycle space. The dirty two-stroke engine had finally run its course, with people and governments sick of the noise and pollution that came with them. Though the company had built their reputation on their two-stroke engines, when the time ended, Suzuki was ready. Suzuki's first four-stroke bike, the previously mentioned GT750 Water Buffalo, was a huge (laughs) success. It opened up the doors to a golden age for Suzuki during the late 70s and 80s that resulted in their GS series of bikes. The legendary GS1000, GS1100, GS700, and GS1150, the iconic Katana, basically invented the modern superbike. 
But those were all prelude to Suzuki's ultimate achievement, the lauded 1985 GSXR750 and its successor, the GSXR1100, the Jixer. Jixer. Nice. Uh, I graduated high school in 2003. Mm-hmm. So, like, right when, like, we were like really in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and so many of my friends signed up for the military and, and bought Jixers. Oh man! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember back in like my community college days, I matched with a girl on Tinder who was in the army uh-huh. who rode a Jixer as well. Chloe, <laughs> stop listening to this. Uh-huh. <laughs> it didn't go anywhere, but. Uh, it's <laughs> it's not still going. No, no. Okay. Uh, okay, Chloe. He's cool. Yeah, it's fine. It's all good. <laughs> this is in community You're college. His only girlfriend. Yes. 2012. <laughs> Stop emailing us. <laughs> and while it's true that Suzuki was having trouble getting a win in MotoGP in the first decade of the 21st century, in the AMA Superbike Championship, the American Motorcycle Association Championship, they brought home eight titles between 2000 and 2008. I feel like AMA versus MotoGP is like IndyCar versus F1. Copy. Yeah. And I just want to shout out all our mathematician fans. Uh, from 2000 to 2008, they won eight titles. That's every year. Yeah. So. Nice. Yeah, it is. Well, yeah, 2001, is 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008. Eight. M's in my bank account. Yeah. In my bank account. Then in 2011, Suzuki pulled out of MotoGP after a decade's worth of racing that resulted in just a single win. Yeah, I would probably do that too. Back then, people speculated that Suzuki was out of racing for good, but it turned out that they had gone to work developing the GSX RR, the Jixer, which exploded the company back onto the scene just four years later in 2015. This was the same bike that brought them a win in 2020 with one John Mira. And this brings us back to the beginning of the episode. Many people believe that the choice to quit MotoGP is just a repeat performance of their 2011 shenanigans. Maybe Suzuki is just focusing on R&D. Or maybe they're in financial dire straits. Um, Unfortunately, there's no real indication if this is the case. And in short, people are pissed. They feel abandoned, betrayed, left in a lurch, hung out to dry, and among other analogies. Uh, Much like owners of Suzuki cars felt when Suzuki pulled out of the U.S. auto market in 2012. Weren't they making another Grand Vitara? (laughs) Why would Suzuki want to abandon its last reliable source of bread and butter in North America? Motorcycle racing. Why? I thought you were going to say bread and butter. Bread and butter. Looms. Pivoted to looms and butter. Pivoting to butter. Looms and butter sounds like a conscious hip-hop. Looms and butter. It's like a logic album. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who can relate? (laughs) (laughs) So what is going on? Is Suzuki quitting racing forever? In a clarifying letter released by Suzuki VP of Motorcycle and ATV Sales and Marketing, Carrie Graber, Confirmed that Suzuki's racing programs in Moto America, AMA Supercross, and Motocross, and NHRA Pro Stock Drag Racing will continue. Dude, the Pro Stock motorcycles are, Mm -hmm. it's like insane. It's so sick. Oh, the drag racing ones? 
It's so tight. I daily one. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. just going to say. I was wondering who that was out front. Mm-hmm. I, was like, I try and keep it low key. Yeah. I don't want to like advertise it. <laughs> I keep tripping over your wheelie bar on the back. Um, it sticks out well, about be careful because that's really expensive. And maybe <laughs> you should be more careful. <laughs> okay, fine. Do I trip over your car? No, but it doesn't have a 10 foot long wheelie bar on the back. Yeah. Well, it's because um, you don't need one, I guess. I don't know. Just <laughs> watch out for my wheelie bar. So while Suzuki's decision to pull out of MotoGP again might seem like another sudden and head-scratching move, especially considering the contract situation with Dorna, there's plenty of evidence that Suzuki has been slowly stepping back from motorcycles for years. Not to take anything away from the GSX-RR, but it's hardly a revolutionary design. Zing? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A zing much? Uh, zing much? (laughs) When Harley, uh, the boomeriest company in the world, is releasing more new engines than your company is, it's time to admit that you may be doing something wrong. There's every indication that Suzuki is simply running out the clock with regard to motorcycle sales in the U.S., offering their models for as long as people will buy them, but not throwing good money after bad. The last new engine Suzuki dropped was the 999cc inline four that they put in the 2017 GSXR 1000. The Hayabusa refresh last year was nothing more than another retune uh, of the 2008 engine. For the last 15 years, motorcycle sales in the U.S. have been in a long slump, from a peak in 2006. There was a slight COVID jump uh, in 2020 and 2021, but that's a blip that's not representative of any substantial changes in the industry. And even with an increase in sales, Suzuki profits are rumored to be down thanks to a rise in material cost. It's also worth mentioning that motorcycles are in a similar position today as they found themselves in the 70s when two strokes finally came up against government regulation. Increasingly stringent emission regulations are making it harder and harder for manufacturers to meet standards. With a looming emissions lawsuit in Europe potentially about to eat up a substantial amount of capital, things are just looking worse. Was that pun intended? The looming emissions? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Suzuki is a company that has had to pivot and change course since its infancy. They started off making looms, then built automobiles before World War II forced them to abandon any non-essential work. Then they went back to the looms, despite the existence of several innovative auto prototypes. It wasn't until the cotton market collapsed in the 1950s that Suzuki could finally turn towards automobile manufacturing and tacked on motorcycles for good measure. The ups and downs of the market, supported in part by a damning Consumer Reports article, have whipped Suzuki this way and that. Though they are out of MotoGP for now, it would be surprising if they stayed out. My big takeaway is how are these Japanese companies so good at pivoting to like random markets? I feel like Mitsubishi makes lawnmowers. We had a Mitsubishi microwave when I was a kid. Microwaves, Yamaha and Suzuki both make instruments. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That sounds like a you problem. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if they pivoted to e-bikes soon. Oh, that would be smart. Yeah. That would be really smart. Joe, you should go apply for them. To, to uh, there. Sorry, I don't know anything about e- or bikes, <laughs> but can I have a job? 
We've got a, we've got an email from Dom. He's from the UK. Let's let's see what he says. <laughs> Can I, should I do it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hi gang. My name's Dom and I'm from the UK. Love the show. My favorite episode is probably Duncan Hamilton one. Oh, yeah. Having just listened to the new Jackie Stewart episode, I wanted to let you know that when a UK place name ends in Shire, it's pronounced like Shire, not Shire. <laughs> <laughs> E.g. Wilshire. Wiltshire. Wiltshire. <laughs> Wiltshire. Wiltshire. Thanks for all the great work you put in to the podcast and YouTube. Keep it up. Love you guys. Cheers. Well, thanks, Dom. Thanks, yeah. Dom. So all the hobbits live in a shear? In a shear. The shear. Yeah, is that what you're saying, Dom? Is that what you're saying, Dom? Because last I checked, you... <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I, just, I have a feeling that the two factors, this guy's name's Dom. He's from the UK. Probably is cool looking and wears like a sick motorcycle jacket. His name's Dom Petrol and he wears like a leather vest. And- My name's Dom Swift. I'm here to fucking <laughs> kiss you. <laughs> All right, thanks for the email, Dom. If you'd like to hit us up, uh, check us check out our email address. It's uh, pascas at donutmedia.com. Send us an email. You can uh, you can tell us how to pronounce your hometown as well. <laughs> uh, big thank you to our writer this week, Michael Perkins, and our producers Christina Belsky and Gavin Kinzel. And thank you to you for listening. Hey, follow the boys on social media. Follow James at James Pumphrey. Follow Joe at Joe G Weber. Follow me at Nolan J Sykes. Tell a friend about the show. Uh, that's how we grow. Whoa, that rhymes. That's my new catchphrase for this your program and now it's time to go tell a friend about bro. the show that's how we grow now it's time to go bro so cheerio <laughs> yeah. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.